0: It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? Oh, it's a Wednesday and we're winding down towards Christmas. But today I thought I'd share something special with you. It is a recording that I made during the event Spirit Duality in 2020. During the year of lockdowns in the UK, I did three... Uh, virtual events and I I guess that is kind of what's driving me towards changing this podcast because I so enjoyed the process of speaking to people on the subject that uh, it's kind of opened the door for me to do that and it's and I realized I've come up with an idea or a structure to do that which I explored with you last week. So as an example that I thought I would share with you this week one of the conversations I had during the Spirit Duality um, conference Now spirituality is this sense for me is that we are greater than the sum of our parts and there is this huge piece of thing or this huge thing that we all experience in life that we might call intuition or luck or something that is just beyond our vision that somehow makes life work for us or makes us feel better about life. That was what the, the, the kernel of, of spirituality was about. It was this idea of exploring that from lots of aspects, talking to people of different faiths, people with faith and without faith, to understand where they sit with this and to try and draw some conclusions from it. So that was the event. Anyway, one of the speakers at the event was someone who I had discovered um, while trawling around for speakers, and I had discovered this lady on, at a TED Talk. This is Dr. Lisa Miller. We can use the
1: lens of science, in this case clinical science, social science, to understand how when we develop our spiritual inner compass, when we cultivate our inner spiritual heart, life unfolds in a different
0: way. So I'm going to read you her biography from the the event. Lisa Miller is the Professor of Psychology and Education at Columbia University Teaching College and she's the founder of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute and it's one of the first Ivy League College graduate program in spirituality and psychology. She has worked with banks, with governments, with military, with all sorts of organizations who you would never consider would look at spirituality as a functioning part of their operation but she has she worked with these people to show them how it changes lives so I thought I would share this this talk with you because I think it's so valuable to to hear what she has to say and at this time of the year we could all do a little bit of something eh? so I hope you enjoyed the conversation with dr. Lisa Miller Welcome to another inspirational session. I am delighted to be with Dr. Lisa Miller. Now, Lisa Miller is a Professor Office of Psychology and Education at Columbia University Teachers College and is the founder of Spiritual Mind Body Institute, the first Ivy League graduate program in spirituality and and psychology. Uh, Lisa is, uh, I found Lisa on a TED talk where she was talking about her own experience with spirituality. And the fact that she's a scientist working in this area really, really inspired me. So when I was putting this duality event together, I really wanted someone to talk to us from this perspective and also to hear their story about it, how they got there. So thank you so much, Lisa, for being with me today.
1: Well, Paul, it's a joy to be with you. And I so appreciate what you're doing, being part of the increasing awareness that is so necessary in our time greater
0: spiritual awareness absolutely absolutely so you're a scientist and a lot of scientists hold their faith but sometimes they hold it in kind of like a box separate from their science it's like two two different people living a duality but never crossing never meeting Um, what is your story did you come to science first or did you come to spirituality first or or where are where do you sit in spirituality in, in that point
1: so I I agree with you, Paul, that science is a wonderful method of knowing. It's a wonderful method that draws on empiricism and logic. But if you actually sit down and talk to scientists, there's data that shows that over two-thirds of scientists reach the question that they then are to investigate through an act of inspiration, perhaps a dream, mystical knowing, intuition, but it is not through logical and empiricism necessarily alone that the good question is asked. Logic and empiricism roll out the method. They roll out the discernment of how to parse and understand the implications of our findings. But to really be a good scientist is to be a good artist, is to be a good parent, is to be a good lover, is to be a good anything. It's to use all of our forms of knowing. And we are knowers in multiple forms. We are mystical knowers, direct knowers, intuitives. We are logicians, empiricists. We are all these things, every one of us. The more that we bring all forms of knowing together, assemble everyone at the table, the more we are able to converge on truth. And in fact, it's the back and forth between our forms of knowing that I think best enables us to reach the finest decisions. The decisions that are best for both ours and others the decisions which are most generative. So this is really not only a nice way to be or an interesting way to be, it is an essential way to be. And the lion's shares of opportunities before us are ones that need to be addressed through multiple forms of knowing.
0: Mm. So how did you get to that place? Um, Well, it depends how far back we go. (laughs) Um, I, I can say
1: that I'm so very grateful that I was raised by, um, I guess you might say, a modern-day suburban shaman and a mother, and a ponderous, reflective, um, very thoughtful professor of a father. And between the two of them, it was very clear that we do know in many forms, and we are right to know in many forms. perhaps in terms of formative experiences, my great love of science probably came when I was three years old. And to this day, it's so moving to me. Someone woke me in the middle of the night. They picked me out of bed and put me in front of the television as I saw humans land on the moon and pointed a finger and said, science put us there. And the idea that science could lead us to new boundaries, that science could kick open the door and catapult us to new places was absolutely riveting. And I think probably formed the rest of my life's work in that moment. And at the same time, we know the moon is a transcendent presence. The moon brings life, the moon brings cycles, the moon brings babies, the moon heals and revolves. So it was of all places that we landed, we landed on the moon. And Um, My mother is a deeply spiritual woman who prayed out loud, who thanked God for her children, who showed us that life happened in both linear and non-linear ways that you know, my mother would get in the car and say, okay, let's all go. And I'd say, where are we going? Do we have a map? And my mom would say, well, you can just feel where you're being taken. And that notion that intuition is trustworthy, we have an internal GPS, um, trust it, it'll get you where you need to go was as important as knowing that you needed you know NASA at, in Houston Texas to get you to the moon so you need both you need your internal GPS and you need the science and rigor of NASA and together we all get to the moon
0: and so your story is obviously you followed into science and then you end up in psychology in terms of, so is there a is there a is there a science of spirituality Paul I'm so grateful
1: you asked so You know, science is this fantastic lens of perception. We have microscopes, we have telescopes. It's it's a lens of seeing, um, a lens of knowing. And that lens can be pointed anywhere. It can be pointed at the cell, it can be pointed at the stars, and it can be pointed at the impact of spiritual life in the human life course. We can use the lens of science, in this case, clinical science, social science, to understand how When we develop our spiritual inner compass, when we cultivate our inner spiritual heart, life unfolds in a different way. And that is um, how we chart the unfolding of life can be done through the very standard, strict, off-the-shelf scientific methodologies of epidemiology, of MRI studies, of long-term clinical course studies, of, of genotyping. We can use all of our Um, rigorous standard methodologies off the shelf and point the lens at the impact of spiritual life on the human life course. And when we do that, the findings are astounding. I'll give you examples. Um, Some of our first articles always um, published in peer review science. So this is not just a finding from my lab or anyone else's. Uh, Science patrols itself science refines itself. Um, when an article is published for peer review, it has been examined by at least two or three other scientists at least two or three times. So there's a certainty that the field of science has put the good health house- housekeeping stamp of approval on this and served to refine and clarify the findings as they ultimately land in the common ground. So um, let me give you examples then of what we now know. Um, a young person coming of age who develops their spiritual heart, who says, yes, my personal spirituality is highly important to me, is 80% less likely to become addicted to substances going through the window of risk than a young person, similar in all other regards, who doesn't know what, you t- what you're talking about when you mention spirituality. Put in the language of science, a seen one standard deviation above as compared to below the mean and a tendency to say my personal spirituality is highly important to me has a decreased relative risk of 80% against the diagnostic standard diagnosis of made of substance abuse or addiction. So, you know, that type of impact is rarely seen in clinical or social sciences. Normally we get amazed if there's a 10% protective benefit. If you tell me I'm 20% less likely to get sick if I take this over the counter pill, I'll line up and go grab it. But to think that something is 80% protective or, um, you know, I'll give you another example. Um, People who um, struggle through addiction um, often say that they come through the other side through a deepening of spiritual life, about two thirds of people who come through addiction, come through through an opening of, of spiritual um, awareness. And about of those people, half this comes to spontaneously, half really work at it and chip away. Well, if we know that, if we know that, can't we get ahead of it and help young people early on by cultivating the spiritual core? And that foundational understanding of cultivate the spiritual core ahead of time has been foundational as told through science to now being used as an action plate to rework education. It's now used in the United States Army. It's used through organizations to develop young adults as they enter into business, as they enter into organizational life. So knowing science can be a roadmap, a blueprint. We can enhance human performance, but we can also deepen the purpose, the felt significance of our lives and who we are to one another. So science really is beautiful. Science really can put us on the moon. It can put us on the earth in another way too, as more caring, as more loving, as more productive, as making better decisions. Um, science is, is a wonderful, effectively um, map of, of who we are and what we can be.
0: It's interesting you say that because uh, one of our guests, uh, Pamela Grimm, she um, was uh, she's been clean since 1993 uh, and she went through Narcotics Anonymous uh, to do that. But that is about connecting with the spiritual side of yourself and connecting with a, with a, with a greater story. What is fascinating about Pamela Grimm, though, is that um, the person that took her to Narcotics Anonymous doesn't exist. So she met someone at an AA meeting, and he said, you need to go to Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, And she made a phone, he gave her a phone number. So she phoned the phone number and got an answer phone. And so he, he then he called her back and they made arrangements to go to the meeting. They went to the meeting. And that's the only time she only ever saw him twice. And he said, he goes to all these meetings in the area. He's always there. And she has never ever seen him again and no one else ever saw him either. And when she phoned the number back, that she had to try and find him, to thank him, she got a woman answer the phone and said, there's no one by the ears, never has been. So that's one of those kind of stories. And, and when she mentioned it to someone at Narcotics Anonymous, said, so that's one of the miracles of Narcotics Anonymous, that's what happens around here. And you know, and it's unanswerable. And science can't answer that. <laughs> i mysterious... well, I
1: think, you know, I, I think that, um... Science, well, I'll tell you what science does. Hmm.
0: Um,
1: I'll sh- oh, let me share another story. Let hmm. me share another story. Okay. Um, there was this fellow, brilliant fellow um, named Ken Kendler, and he had a very powerful tool. He developed something called a twin study. Um, he really took it to a next level. We look at twins raised together, twins raised apart, and you can factor out um, the degree of whether anything is heritable or socialized through the extent to which it is shared amongst twins and then the extent to which those twins share genetics and environment. So for instance, um, Ken Keller working you know 20 years ago, he started this, Plus 25, he found that the extent to which we have an innate temperament, whether we're extroverted or introverted, whether we're open to experience or closed, Our temperament is about two thirds, 60% hardwired, 40% cultivated. And our IQ is about half and half. You know, just about any human trait is part socialized and part innate. So the question he asked, which was so wonderful, in 1997 he published this um, in the American Journal of Psychiatry Is there a natural human capacity? our spiritual life. Are we born as innately spiritual beings? And using the method of a twin study, applying this lens as he did, he showed that every single one of us is is born with an innate capacity for spiritual life. It's not like there's spiritual and unspiritual people or that some have the great gift and others don't just as we're all naturally emotional beings and physical beings and cognitive beings, so too, every single one of us is born a naturally spiritual being and how much so? Well, it's in our docking station. We are hardwired, if you will. Um, and it's one third at birth in us, two thirds shaped by who our parents are, the life experiences that come our way. The decisions we make, you know, we ensue a great deal of our environment upon ourselves through our choices, but every single one of us is a naturally spiritual being. And so when we show up for each other, we show up, we show up when we show up for each other who are we to each other? You know, who are we? And, and we're emotional supports and we're physical supports and we help and provide for each other. And we are showing up as spiritual beings for one another. Um, That's who we are. Um, And that's very, that's very meaningful because if we cultivate our innate capacity, if we take this natural endowment and choose to cultivate it in one another, in our organizations, in our businesses, in our schools, in know I've, i've worked for many different types of organizations we realize our nature and our spiritual nature becomes part and parcel of all other lines of development so our moral choices are shaped by our spiritual awareness and our physical stamina is propelled by our depth of spiritual connection and our decision making is much altered and expanded and improved so When we realize our natural spiritual endowment, we realize all of ourselves. We persist, we're more creative, we're we're far better off. And we're certainly um, a lot easier to live with, whether it's in our homes or in our businesses or in our schools, Um, when we're spiritually minded, we are far more given to things like teamwork and collaboration, far less likely to become obsessive and angry and disconnected Um, we're likely to stick with things, we're less likely to quit our jobs and cause our employers to lose money hiring someone new. We're, we're, We're just, you know, better off all the way around. So if you wanted a partner in life, if you wanted a child to grow up, if you wanted an employee in your business to be more creative, to be more ethical, to be better at teamwork and more engaged, you'd want them to be a whole flourishing person. And the seat of being a whole flourishing person is to realize our innate spiritual endowment. That's how I see the implications
0: of knowing who we really are and who we are to one another. Indeed, indeed. So, because there's a lot of modalities in this, isn't there? Because, I mean, i i I've spoken to a rabbi, i spoken to a Jesuit priest. Um, I've spoken to people in Buddhism and all sorts of various kind of like cultures. Certainly, um, Hindu, the um, Vedic tradition. So I've quite a few people in the last couple of weeks. From a scientific perspective, or from your perspective, what does it mean living a spiritual life? Is, does this is, is there are certain things that you do on a daily pra- on a daily basis that 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 are that in tune you with this? What what does it look like? You need
1: to realize our deep way of being, right? It could be within a faith tradition or outside a faith tradition. It could be augmented through a broad range of different practices or forms of reflection, but to realize our innate capacity for spiritual life is to realize a deep way of being, um, one of love and interconnection, one in which we see ourselves in dialogue with a loving force in life Um, This is our birthright to see the world and know the world this way. And when we foster this seed of being, this seed of perception, then any other choice we make is entirely different. Any other passing moment on the street unfolds entirely differently. If I have the respect and honor for the gift that is inside me, that is inside every single one of us, um, we, there's a. Broad host of ways, but we have for us the opportunity to foster a deep way of being through which we are in connection with all life, humans and other living beings. A deep way of being through which we are in connection with all life, with love and reverence. Mm-hmm. But, and that's yeah. all of ours. That's yeah. not just for the special monks or the most. <laughs>
0: that's all of ours. But I mean, in terms of that, you know, there is. Okay. So the monks, as you say, as you rightly pointed out that the, they take it to the nth degree that they take it in terms of that idea of devotion in, in a completely different way. Um, right over in one direction, whereas another other people take it in another direction. How, you, know, you say you, you go into businesses or you talk to businesses or, or um, you've you mentioned the military. How does the military use spirituality?
1: So it's very, very moving. What I've found is that whether you're talking about imagining a managing partner at a midtown investment house or a very senior ranking person in the army, there is in leaders a deep generativity for the people in their care. And there is a commitment that the young adult or the mid-career adult is radically shaped by working under their leader, their boss. That's well understood. And that the sense of being seen and cared for and developed um, has everything to do with certainly uh, their productivity, but also the bandwidth of possibility for the organization. Um, that the quality of decision-making and readiness and fitness, whether you're talking about, again, a midtown investment house or the US Armed Services is shaped by the full realization of our spiritual capacity, a way of being through which we can see connection through which we see love, through which the form of our decisions are entirely different, a way of being through which I, as a coworker, whether I'm in the military or in a bank, speak to the person next to me, love them more deeply than the annoying thing they just did or didn't do, right? Um, Love them more deeply than their performance or lack thereof. This can exist as the deep bedrock the glue that holds relationality together. Um, And there's concrete and actionable ways that any organization, whether it's a bank or the military school or anywhere else can become a spiritually supportive climate and culture. We've we've seen this, we've studied spiritually supportive organizations and it tends not to be held in anything that lands on the desk, whether you're talking about a curriculum or the principles, Um, it tends to be held in the relational fabric of the organization. And every single day um, promoted from the leaders all the way down through clear and actionable ways. So for instance, um, I'll give you two examples. Um, We've found that spiritually supportive organizations have a language of transcendence and knowing and it's vertically integrated. It's used by the head and under him or her, the leadership team and under them, the next group. There's a language of knowing, there's a language of transcendence um, And people know it is a valid form of knowing taken in tandem alongside the discernment of other forms of knowing. What else have we found? Spiritually supportive organizations have a moment each day when there's a pause, and whether I am the doorman or the receptionist or the CEO, everyone takes time for reflection, and it is often a form of reflection that is a receptive form of knowing. It's the capacity. Practiced every day to use my inner life as a, like a, in a receptive way, not just to quiet my mind. Quieting and emptying my mind is a nice first step. To be mindful gets me to the door. But mindfulness is not enough. You need mindfulness plus crossing over the door into, from a quiet mind into a receptive way of knowing. And organizations have that. There, there's a host of things we've seen. These are actionable things that can be day in and day out deliberately and intentionally and always are deliberately and intentionally set up by the head the ceo the head of school the general whoever the head might be and sent through the relational culture of the organization and when that happens the nat the one-third innate the natural human capacity for augmented spiritual awareness the decision-making relationality ethics and persistence that come out of that and this is what we're seeing in the military that then shapes the entire organization it works.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a strange thing to think about that in the military, when their sole job is to go and kill people. <laughs> well, defend, but at the end of the day, it's still it's still it's still a weapon. They're still controlling weapons, but it's a weird one to me. So, is there a list of those things somewhere? Do you have them written down somewhere that we could see them?
1: We do, we do, and we've also. Um... We're publishing on this. We've published, um, it'll be coming out at Oxford University Press. Something will be coming out. We've published in some journals. So this, um, the transformative properties of a spiritually supportive organization. This work is all coming out in the next year. And I, the book that I really have found very, very helpful over the past three, five years is the summation of our formative years. The first two decades of life. I entitled that book, The Spiritual Child. And the spiritual child really is about ages zero through 24. Mm -hmm. The spiritual teen um, in adolescence now runs right up to 24. We all move home to our parents' apartments. Um, Zero through 24 is really a profoundly formative time for parents, for schools, for faith communities, for recovery centers, to grab this profoundly uh, just extraordinary opportunity for shaping the spiritual core in young people. Remember one third innate, two thirds socialized Mm. and the two thirds that socialized is in our hands and an act of support of the spiritual core can last the lifetime. Um, If we do nothing and say nothing, that is a choice as well, that's an act of omission. So the young person needs our support Um, and With it, um, if the spiritual core is formed with the two thirds socialized support, we know through clinical and social science, there's no other factor as profoundly protective against the most prevalent forms of suffering. Addiction, as we've discussed, depression, risk-taking. As you know, and it's quite tragic, the risk of death by suicide in a young person now rivals that of risk by death by auto accidents. So into the same sense that we would tell our kids to buckle up and wear a seatbelt, we need to get ahead of this now. Um, Risk of death by suicide in middle school, in high school now equals that of risk of death by auto accident. That's very serious. And it's in our hands to make a difference, whether we're teachers, parents, leaders in any form. And that's actually an opportunity as well for the business community, because businesses are led by parents, by grandparents, people who care deeply about the young. And their employees, you know, time flies in eight years, 12 years, will be shaped by a culture and climate that supports the spiritual core for decision making and ethics or does not. Um, So this is our choice. This is our communitarian, all hands on deck, calling all cars, you know, whether we are talking about teachers or business leaders or clergy, um, this is our crisis and it's our opportunity.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very aware that, you know, we we are evolutionary, we're the process of evolution and what occurs to me that spirituality has been with us throughout the entire of our, our entire period as being humans. And based on the fact that evolution dumps the things that doesn't work uh, and it's still here, there must be a good basis for it. What a lovely comment, Paul. So here's how I might tell it. When I see something
1: with my eyes, like a chair or a table, I take that very seriously so that I don't plow into the chair or table. I trust you know, 99.9% of my time, I accurately see through my eyes and avoid bumping into chairs and tables. Well, when I see through my depth of spiritual knowing, when I perceive through my spiritual heart, and I trust that, I have found that actually more than 99% of the time, more than 99.9% of the time, it has absolutely been a trustworthy form of knowing. So the proof is um, right before us. When we trust spiritual knowing, life unfolds in a very glorious way. Um, That might be one way that we can think into this. And I would love to share um, a story. You know, I I worked some years ago at a high school, probably 15, 20 years ago, doing group treatment for young girls in Harlem, girls who were pregnant, and many of them had been thrown out of their homes. Some of them were threatened. Um, These were girls who really didn't have a lot to rely on and had been terribly mistreated by society um, for being young mothers. They were 14, 15, 16 years old, very poor um, of material resources. And there we all were in our group. And I, sh- I asked them, I said, you know, what do you think was the very first representation anywhere of a human being? Do you think it was maybe a warrior written on a cave? Or do you think they were men running? What do you think to the best of our knowledge is the longest standing representation of a human being? And I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe, you know, men making fire, or, you know, hunting, and you know, this, this went on and on. And I said, well, I held up a picture of the Venus of Willendorf. It was this. It was of a female figure full of life. And the Venus of Willendorf, of course, as you know, was found throughout Central Europe and into Asia in the upper Paleolithic period it is our oldest representation. And from you know, the view of psychological anthropology, we knew, we knew the sanctity of life. We knew the fullness of the feminine, of life-giving of, of earth. And that to be found so long ago and in multiple copies, multiple forms, suggests that we had a sense of transcendence in the human condition. The girls knew exactly what it meant. And it launched us into a very intensive process of realizing ourselves, themselves, as 14 and 15-year-old girls, as full of sacredness, as transcendent beings, um, and that no matter what anyone said to them, it didn't matter how poor or disenfranchised I was, I was of infinite and abundant worth. And that realization, quarter inch under the surface, is there for all of us. And it's that knowing that gets us through our hardest times. It's that knowing that opens up a deeper sense of who we are to one another, what we're doing here on earth, and what our opportunity for realizing a different type of community really is.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we, we've been talking for a while, and we're probably coming close to the, our time because I know you're. I know you've got loads to do today, and I and I'm really, really so delighted that you made the time to speak to me. So, is there anything else you want to add to this? I mean, I know you actually yourself had some amazing experiences, which I think people will point people to your TED talk. Have you had any more of those since then? Well,
1: thank you for sharing the TED talk. Um, that's a piece of my journey and it highlights that in order to find my path and I offer it for consideration for all of us, but in order to find my path, I needed to trust inner knowing. I needed to trust my spiritual heart. I needed Mm. to draw on a form of awareness that augmented the possibilities before me. And even I think brought me into dialogue with a loving guiding universe. In order to find perhaps the most important people in my life who were my children, um, that was a process that only happened in the realm of miracles, maybe how every child lands here. And to get there and see them safely into our family required living in an open sacred dialogue with the force of life. I would say God, some say the universe, the creator, Allah, Hashem, whatever word you go by. But op- but feeling, you know, do I turn right or left to go back to my mother in the car? Listening to what your higher power is saying and take the right or left based on that information. There is no other information that's gonna be as certain as that. But bring the intuitive and the mystic to the table with all other forms of knowing, with the skeptic and everyone else, because the spiritual journey is only refined and realized and strengthened through all the refines of knowing. The skeptic can't get in your way. The skeptic is part of the dialogue and trusting mystical knowing, trusting intuitive knowing, seeing the path opening up um, is our opportunity of a lifetime. Mm,
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That is an an amazing conversation to have with you. Thank you so much.
1: Paul, it's such a joy to join you. And I look forward to learning more and more about all of your speakers in your series. It's such landmark work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. There we go. We're done unless you, yeah, that's it. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, Paul, it was lovely. I love the way that you,
1: you know, you go into a handful of things in depth. Instead of just skipping along the surface, and I think it's a very rich way to interview people.
0: Thank you. I do have one little story. Do we want? Do you edit these, or are we done? I can edit together, put it together. If you've got a story, yeah. What do you want to say? Sure. Okay. Good. So you've got a story for
1: me. I do have a story for you. Um, I was asked several years ago. It was the first business I worked in to come to a very well-known um, New York Midtown bank. And I was surprised that as it was my first time there, they had pulled forward their um, largest investors. These were people who'd invested at least 50 or a hundred million dollars. And we were going to have a talk about spirituality and parenting. And I appreciated the trust. I appreciated the awareness that um, their investors, their top investors also were parents. And if they really, and that they knew their investors as parents committed to the wellness of their children. Well,
0: a good point here, isn't it? Because because money really buggers up your, your children.
1: <laughs> well, it's very interesting you should say that because part of the invitation was um, that these parents, having had more money than they ever dreamed, many of them had um, found it independently, some had inherited it, but having had um, enough money to never think about it, were hungry for more and worried about how they would raise their children to feel a depth of connection to life, how they would raise their children to feel a higher purpose, to feel more yeah. and be more than the money they were to be handed. And so it really, as you say, Paul, was precisely for that reason that I think this um, well-known investment house said, please speak to our investor parents. Yeah. When I got there, we sat there and I was struck to see that both fathers and mothers had come and um, were very eager. They knew the topic. It was based on my book, The Spiritual Child The New Science for Parenting and Lifelong Thriving. They knew the topic and sensed at some level there was a spiritual hunger in themselves and a spiritual need in their child yet to be realized. And so, together, We engaged in practices that any family can do that help jumpstart, if you will, the natural spirituality in the family. And we looked over the science that was reassuring to these um, very bright, numbers-driven investors um, who were moved and uplifted to see that this sense that, you know, what my great-grandmother said, what my grandmother had said has always echoed in my heart. I've always sensed it was true. Whether I came from India, whether I came from London, whether I came from Dallas, um, that which, which, with which I was raised, that that I heard from my grandmother, I'd always sensed that was true and wondered, how now do I bring that back into our lives? Um, so very smart people, very smart people and numbers driven people also sense that there is a human hunger, a human need for spiritual life, and that it is an essential to being all who we are, having more beyond our money, having more beyond our outward success. And it is an imperative to pass that lifeline, throw it now to
0: our children. Mm. And how, I mean, it's interesting, how do they do that though? In, In a situation where their children can have anything, you're like, you, and I, and I've seen it in this country of children off the rails from wealthy parents, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm and I've seen it in the, in the states as well. So it's very common. It's like, what does one do? like is it I don't know how I, it must be a very interesting journey. Because well, so Paul, you're so
1: right because actually there's strong science that shows that children from highly resourced communities have less than a quarter of the national rate of strength of spirit personal spirituality. So in the US, I have a colleague, Dr. Sunia Luther, who looked at children in highly resourced communities. She looked along the New York corridor and around the San Francisco corridor and found to the surprise of clinical science at the time, Dr. Luther started this work about 25 years ago, that there were higher rates of depression, higher rates of addiction amongst children of highly resourced parents than in the inner city. And so when I teamed up with Dr. Luther a few years ago, we asked the question, okay, we know that there's greater depression, greater anxiety, greater addiction amongst children of highly resourced families than in the inner city. What's the role of spirituality here? And it turned out that indeed, children in these communities were less than a quarter as likely to say, my personal spirituality is highly important to me. I turn to my higher power for guidance direction in times of difficulty. Everything we know about the importance of spiritual life was not benefiting children in well-resourced communities as much as it was children in poor communities, in more religiously observant communities. And so it became obvious that the hunger and the need for love, for connection, for spiritual awareness in these children was so great that the parents came to the table. And indeed, when I shared the spiritual child the science of how to resurrect spiritual life in our families it was places where there had been clusters of suicides it was palo alto california it was rye new york it was schools known for their secularism even atheism in new york city that invited me first and the parents cried because they felt the hunger they felt the emptiness and they'd shoot up their hands even higher when it was about themselves and their kids to ask you know, how do I become more spiritual? Um, am I spiritual? You know, this this was more important than all the money in the world. And they knew that. Um, and they knew that all the money in the world couldn't fill this hole. So it, it's, you know, it doesn't need to be preached. Wealthy parents know it. And they're asking for help and they're trying to do the work themselves now um, because their kid's happiness, their kid's fulfillment, their kid's lives in some cases depend on that.
0: I think your microphone's just gone off. Well, th- so Paul, um, thank
1: you for this discussion. I'm yes. So-
0: yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a, it been an absolute joy to talk to you, uh, and I'm I'm so pleased that there is science backing all this up because it's just a uh, uh, you know it, it's and it's wonderful that you're doing the work. Thank you for doing the work on this because I think it's. Uh, you are contributing a lot to this, so thank you so much. Thank you for sharing the science. So, look, everybody, if you want to find out more about uh, Lisa's work, please check out her speaker page. The details of her book are there. These are the TED Talk are there, and you can reach out to, Le- uh, to Lisa on her various platforms because I'm sure she'd be like delighted to talk to you. So, and that was one of my early subject-based recordings on the subject of spirituality with Dr Lisa Miller. If you'd like to connect with Lisa, you can find her on the website, The Teachers College, Columbia University. That's Dr Lisa Miller. She's a professor of psychology and education and there's these de- contact details for her there, which I'm not gonna put out publicly. I think if you wanna find her, you need to go and look for her. You can also find her book, uh, which is on Amazon. Uh, she has several books, but the newest one, which she was talking about on the program, but wasn't allowed to say very much about it is called The Awakened Brain, The Psychology of Spirituality, Our Search for Meaning. And that is available on uh, at, through Amazon, both as a Kindle, an audio and a paperback. So do check those out. I will put those links at the website at lifepassionandbusiness.com. If you are curious about the full event, spirituality, do check out the website there, because the details... Check out the events part of the website, because the details for it are there. It only remains to me to wish you the very best for the festive season. And if you want to get the best out of it, check out last week's podcast, Beyond Presents, because it is all about how to use gratitude to enhance your Christmas experience or your festive experience, whichever you want to celebrate. So, as always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. And I hope you're going to stay with me into 2023 when we have an amazing year ahead of us. So, as always, thank you so much for your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best. hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion, a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means, that is the path to a good life. Now, look, You don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time. Certainly any time I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey. Because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought. Because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process... Do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions ebook and worksheets. Now, this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery. And it's at the amazing price of just 12 99 So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing And of course, sharing it with a friend, because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.